You're tuned in to the Living Hero Podcast at livinghero.com. Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and today our program features a conversation with Vandana Shiva, celebrated ecofeminist, grassroots activist, research physicist, author, and international spokesperson for alternatives to globalization. Vandana advocates for the retention of citizens' rights to manage their own livelihoods and their rights to water, land, and non-GMO seeds. In 1991, Shiva founded Navdanya, an organization which has become a strong, proactive movement for seed saving and organic farming in India. She has authored 13 books, including Soil Not Oil, Earth Democracy, and Stolen Harvest. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Right Livelihood Award, the Global 500 Award of the United Nations, and the Lenin Ono Grant for Peace. Glad you can be with us. You're really such a powerful voice on the world stage now how did it happen this passion what's behind it how did you first start out did you have some realization did you observe something in particular that stirred you to this activism well one always has to have a an experience uh, that uh, tells you something is not right and that you have to work for setting it right and really there are two steps for me the first was this amazing movement that emerged in my region of uh, the Himalaya. I'm from the Himalaya. I'm from uh, Dehradun. And uh, my father was a forest conservator. And I've grown up and walked these mountains when the forests were lush. And I saw the forest disappear. It was the women of our region who in the early 70s decided to start a movement, uh, amazingly creative movement called Chipko, which means to hug. And they said, we will hug the trees, you'll have to kill us before you kill the trees. And this was done in village after village for about a decade. And when I heard about this movement, I joined as a volunteer, and I would do physics during my terms, and I would be in the Himalaya, in the forests with the women during my holidays. This became a ritual for me. And it's in that process I learned two things. One, that ordinary people can act. And two, women know best what's going wrong in the world because they've been left to do all the hard work, whether it's fetching water or fetching the fuel wood or whatever. So when the forests go, they know that it pinches and, uh, and therefore they resist. And then in 84 was the next step. This was early 70s. I became an ecologist. I started to write about things and I volunteered when I could. But in 1984, we had a number of very, very tragic um, events in this country. Well, before that, before mm. that, there was the beginning of large-scale terrorism. And in 1984, the Golden Temple, the sacred shrine of the Sikhs, had to be invaded. The person who was leading the extremism in Punjab was in there. Indira Gandhi ordered this invasion. And uh, by... November that year, Indira Gandhi was assassinated. But this was the land where the Green Revolution was introduced. And the Green Revolution story, for which Norman Borlaug got a Nobel Peace Prize, was the chemicals and seeds he brought to India in the 1960s would create so much wealth and so much richness for the farmers that the farmers would be prosperous and through that there would be peace. And this was called the Green Revolution to say it was not the Red Path which was being adopted in China. 
that same year, December, we have Bhopal now. That these, just these two things take 30,000 lives. That's six times 9-11 in Punjab and six times 9-11 in Bhopal. And by the end of the year, I was asking myself, why? what is this agriculture that needs these pesticides? What is this thing called the Green Revolution that makes farmers take up guns? And then I did my research. I wrote my book called The Violence of the Green Revolution. And by the end of it, realized that the, a war industry had rehabilitated itself as an agrochemical industry, twisted every policy of agriculture everywhere in the world, forced and imposed industrial farming on the world, created destruction of the planet, created dispossession of the farmers, and disease. We now have a train that leaves Punjab called the cancer train. 50% of the people on it have cancer. Ah. All this was so unnecessary. So I just decided to start promoting sustainable agriculture, which I studied hard about. And in 87, because of my work on agriculture, I get called to a meeting on biotechnology, which at that time was not commercialized. It was still an idea. And the industry lays out a plan, how they want to patent every seed, genetically modify every crop, and use a free trade treaty at that time called GATT, the General Agreement on Trade and Tariff, which became the World Trade Organization, to make sure every country is forced to adopt patenting, every country is forced to open up their markets to GMOs. And I just felt this is a dictatorship and came home, got, you know, thought about Gandhi, thought about his spinning wheel, said the seed has to become our spinning wheel, started Navdanya, I started saving seeds, I started promoting organic farming. And we've kept going at it. We've just had a very, very big victory in India. They tried to push yeah, the BT Bridge all and we've had a moratorium. So, yeah, you just keep going because a lot is at stake. Uh, the beauty of this world, the sustainability of the world, and justice for people. And, uh, yes. If you can do something, you do something. So let's talk about the connections and the relationships that you see among suicide seeds, suicide farmers, and suicide bombers. Mm-hmm. Very intimate connection because um, suicide seeds, which actually commercially are not allowed because the suicide seeds have been banned under the Convention on Biological Diversity. But since these companies are the only ones who know how they are making the seed, what sterility are they using to make hybrids? Some people think that they are already using the Terminator. But in any case, most of the seeds being sold that are genetically engineered are embedded in hybrids. And hybrids can't be saved by farmers. So economically, they are in any case seeds that self-destruct so that farmers must buy every year. But they are not terminator seeds. Creating a non-renewable seed out of the most important symbol of renewability, which is the seed itself, is the desperation of a corporate culture based on profits at any cost. For them, not losing a single dollar and maximizing profits leads them to this terribly evil consequence of making seed non-renewable. And when seed is non-renewable and seed is then patented so that you collect high levels of royalty and you shoot up the costs and you design the seeds in, in, through technologies that make them vulnerable to pests, because that's what genetic engineering does. The only two ways in which you can make 
genetically engineered crops. You either shoot genes that don't belong to the plant through a gene gun, or you infect the plant through a plant cancer called agrobacterium. In either case, it's a violent rupture of the amazing organizational structures of the plant. And now you have a plant which has lost its metabolic stability. It has lost its resilience and gets attacked by pests. The combination of all of this means farmers are spending a lot of money, most of it which they don't have. They buy the seeds on credit, they buy the chemicals on credit. Within two years, they're in such deep debt that the very agents of the companies who sold them the chemicals and the seeds now come and say, your land is ours. You haven't been able to pay your debt. That's the day the farmer ends up drinking pesticides to end his life. So the non-renewability of the seeds and the greed embodied in that culture of the suicide seed as a non-renewable seed then leads to the suicides of farmers. It's such a nightmare. It is a nightmare. And then on the other side, you have, uh, you know, so farmers are ending their lives, but there's another desperation in the world where people are feeling the democratic path isn't available to them. They've been silenced. They've been excluded. Their societies have been taken over by forces they don't control. And that's when they decide, if the only way I will be heard is by strapping a bomb to me and becoming a suicide bomber, that's the way I'll end my life, so that at least my scream gets heard. All three are deeply connected. They're steps of desperation. They're steps of desperation coming out of a culture born of violence. And they are, in a way, telling us that what we have created are suicidal economies and suicidal politics, and we need to break out of it. And that's why I talk of creating living economies and living cultures, because this is just the beginning. This is just the very beginning. If things don't change, this is, I mean, poor bees, we could add the bees to this. Why are the bees suddenly going, leaving their um, hives and never returning? What's behind this colony collapse disorder? That it's just not the human being. The whole planet is being devastated in totally, for totally unnecessary steps. The pretense is they're producing more food. They don't produce more food. We do organic farming. We produce five times more food than chemical farms do. Uh, the genetically engineered cotton, they keep saying produce more cotton. No, we produce more cotton because they took over more land to grow only cotton. You know, you could take anything and put one monoculture on it, you'll have more of it. And monocultures themselves, as I have said, the monoculture of the mind, is violence in itself. Because the world longs for diversity. Diversity is the nature of nature. And when that diversity is destroyed, you've already exercised in violence. You have written quite a lot about water privatization and the diminishment of water rights of the people. I think you have some very important messages to impart to our listeners about what's at stake? Well, you know, the movement that started me on this path was a movement to stop forests being cut in order to protect the water, because for the women it was very clear, if you don't have forests in the forest, in the catchments, there'll be no system to hold the water. We have this very particular kind of climate where we get a monsoon. Four months we get lots and lots of rain, and then we get no rain at all. But if you've got to have water around the year, something must hold it. 
and in the mountains it's the forest that hold it, which is why they are called, the forest and the mountains are called Shiva's hair, you know, mm-hmm. that they hold the water. Without it, there would be no conservation of water. So that's part of where this crisis begins. My first uh, major legal victory was um, stopping mining in my valley. I had been invited by the Ministry of Environment to look at the impact of mining of limestone. Now, limestone, because of the way the Himalayas are formed, you know, limestone is created at the bottom of the ocean. And then as these geological plates have moved and the Himalaya have been formed and they're rising, these limestone deposits from the bottom of the ocean have got totally crushed. And over time, in these cracked, fissured belts, the rainwater then dissolves uh, with carbon dioxide and becomes, you know, carbonic acid and keeps dissolving more and more of this limestone so that you get large cavities up in the mountains. Nature has crafted the most amazing water tanks as aquifers in limestone belts. But for the miners, this was just limestone. So we did this study, major decision, first time in India, the Supreme Court of India ruled that when commerce acts against life, then commerce must stop, and we are convinced that in this case, the water systems are being destroyed, um, the Constitution guarantees the right to life for all Indians, a stable environment and stable water is part of that right to life, and therefore these mines must shut down. This was way back in 1982-83, and uh, I was very young, it was my first professional environmental work, and very satisfying, which is why I then left university. I said, if small studies can lead to so much, you know, I can continue to be a smart academic, but uh, I'll publish a few more papers, etc. That's all it'll do. The next step in the whole water issue is the World Bank putting in billions and billions and billions to guide India on the wrong direction. They said, oh, you have wells where you pull out water from? No, you must have deep tubers. They are more efficient. And in the process, you must change your farming from providing food and subsistence to growing sugarcane, because sugarcane is a cash crop, and through that, their interests can be paid back. Or they finance large dams, mega dams. Uh, all of this meant water systems lost their sustainability. If you take out too much groundwater, groundwater runs dry. If you dam up a river, the river runs dry downstream. Uh, the hydrological balance was destroyed. And interestingly, two years ago, the World Bank now writes and says, so what, now, India's made a mess with its water. Uh, it's taken out too much water from the ground. It's dammed up its rivers. And uh, now they'll have to privatize in order to do things right. So I wrote a very interesting report showing how everything they said was wrong had been actually financed by them 20, 30 years ago. That's the advantage of being, having been around 35 years <laughs> in this work. You remember how the same agencies that want to correct you were at the root of the problem. You're listening to the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. Today we're in conversation with eco-feminist and activist Vandana Shiva. So it's the World Bank which is now driving privatization. They've been helped by the World Trade Organization, which sees everything as a commodity. So they have a services agreement, which turns water into a commodity. And the combination of these two, as well as the big construction industry that build dams in America like Bechtel, or Suez in France, or Vivendi, they 
give their own push and basically use public money to get contracts to privatize the water and then collect money again from the public by selling the same water that is a public good at ten times the price. This is insanity, you know, and it's a rip-off. It's an economy of cheating. So I've been fighting from the very beginning along with others in our network of water warriors, Maud Barlow and others, to say water is a common good. Water is the ultimate basis of life. It cannot be turned into a commodity. It cannot be privatized. I'm very happy to say we stopped them from privatizing the Delhi water supply. Um, it, it took us five years of movement building. And uh, I, I remember going to Paul Wolfowitz, who was for a short time the president of the World Bank, and taking some Ganges water and saying, I just, you know, we want to tell you, for us this water is sacred. And uh, hands off our Ganges, hands, hands off our rivers. Mm-hmm. When someone's dying, there's a, a little bit of water from the Ganges poured into their mouth. Yeah, a, a drop of the Ganga water. Because the, the Ganges is seen as the link between this life and the next life. And it's supposed to help the transition. Global corporate hegemony. Isn't this just the next phase of the patriarchy having its way with things? And isn't this a long, long history of fragmentary, destructive, short-sighted moves on the part of the patriarchy? So in order to achieve restoration and regeneration, isn't this whole long history needing an upending, a reversal, a change, rather than a particular treaty or organization or institution or government? This is a worldwide thing, and it has been for a long time. It's just that globalization is the next phase, isn't it? Yeah, um, you know, there's been patriarchy around for a long time. Uh, there's been capitalism around, capitalism around for a few hundred years. But capitalist patriarchy in the form of the rule of the corporation and the corporation as the ultimate patriarch on the planetary scale, that is something that's recent. It's Probably in the North American continent, it's not that recent because you have this corporate rule for longer. But to spread it around the world, it is really globalization that has facilitated it. And the roots of it, of course, go back to patriarchal power, but the joining of two forms of domination, the domination of capital over nature and people, and the domination of men with capital and men with power and men with wealth, over women and the rest of society, that convergence of patriarchy and capitalism, which we call capitalist patriarchy, is more deadly because, you know, for example, if patriarchy is exercised through religion, the best it does is it, you know, it didn't let women become priests. It didn't let women lead rituals. That's it. But the rest of the decisions women could make. That patriarchy did not destroy the conditions of life on this planet corporate patriarchy is doing it. Because corporate patriarchy is squeezing profits out. All the patriarchy was about power. It was not about profits. Combining power and profits together is what is creating the suicidal Mm. thrust Mm -hmm. to the human project. And 
no patriarchy has a place in society because human beings are equal and gender equity is an imperative of democracy. But this is doubly toxic. For me, it is sad that so many women who look for women's liberation do not see how corporations are locking us in. One of my favorites is, you know, um, every advertisement for industrial food used women's liberation as the reason they were bringing frozen dinners, TV dinners, yeah. so the w- woman wouldn't have to cook. But there's an alternative to this. You can still have a kitchen, you can still have fresh food, you can still have wholesome food, you don't have to kill yourself with junk food. And that alternative is everyone cooks. So rather than lose the kitchen to the corporations, what we need is families and men sharing in the joy of cooking. If we can have books published that say joy of cooking, why is that joy taken away from people? So I think very often a false liberation has been sold by the corporations to, get, to make it look like this is being done. For the women, I know in South India, uh, long, about 10 years ago, Monsanto had ads for Roundup, this deadly chemical which kills everything green, with women's hands locked up with green and saying, liberate yourself, use Roundup. So I think we need to really, as full, fully conscious human beings living on this planet as Earth citizens, define and determine our real liberation. And our real liberation means we stop capitalist patriarchy and we undo all the other patriarchies. I'm with you. What forms of protest and civil disobedience that you've been involved with have been the most effective campaigns and what have been their results? I think the most important and successful civil disobedience takes place when A, you know what you want, what's a better world, what's more just, what's more sustainable. You work for something bigger than yourself because no civil disobedience works if it's an individual going against the structures. But if individuals as part of society go against unjust structures for the sake of society, then there's some power to it. And of course, finally, from Gandhi, we have learned that when you do civil disobedience, there's such a grace, the fight for truth, knowing there's there's a better truth about the world, and you put all your passion into it, um, it becomes more powerful than any violent instrument. So how have we used this experience of, of Gandhi Satyagraha? For example, his walking to the beach and making salt when the British had made it illegal for us to say salt. When I started Navdani in 1987, I said, we have to save seeds, and no matter what happens, they want to patent seeds, sooner or later patent laws will come. But we must continue to say there's a higher moral order that requires that we save seeds, because we are caretakers of the biodiversity of this planet. We have received this heritage from the past, and we must hand it over to the future. We must be custodians of seed. We can't be turned into criminals for being protectors of seed. So our entire seed saving is based on a commitment to Satyagraha, See, the seed satyagraha like the salt satyagraha. And in 2004, we had to use it because 2004, again, inspired by Monsanto and pressure of companies, they tried to bring a law that would make it illegal for farmers to have their own seed. As if open-pollinated heritage varieties that have served us over centuries 
are dangerous to this planet. It's entirely so outrageous. To... It's outrageous. But, you know, these laws have already been implemented in the U.S., which is why you don't have diversity on your farms. You just have seed savers now growing, growing their uh, heritage seeds in small plots. But the actual mainstream agriculture is now 70% dependent on purchased seed, GM seed, which is patented. And these companies are making huge profits on collecting royalties from farmers who are dying. The second big success, of course, was, you know, the water thing, when I mentioned the Delhi privatization, that was the water satyagraha. We said we will not obey. We, we will not pay the prices. You know, we would just not accept the privatization of our own water. Another big success was when, uh, you know, and it, uh, tragically it's always uh, this big agribusiness, the, to grab the market for edible oil in India, the soya lobby, which is a combination of Monsanto for seed and Cargill for the trade, worked on the government of India to get our local indigenous oils banned on ground that because they were artisanal, they were dangerous for health. And this kind of food safety law is also being used in the West, and now you have a particularly nasty food safety law that is chasing the uh, Amish farmers because they use artisanal methods. Um, so when this mustard was banned, the women we work with in the slums rang up and said, our children won't eat the food cooked in soya, and uh, please bring back the mustard. So I did a lot of research. I figured out what was going on. I figured out this was relating to dumping of soya. Um, and, you know, the soya industry collects $190 a ton of subsidy from you all and then dumps it on India and destroys, it has destroyed a million uh, virgin oil extraction mills. I don't know how many millions of farmers' livelihoods were taken away. But then we, because the women wanted the mustard oil, we did a sarson satyagraha. Sarson is mustard. Satyagraha is the civil disobedience. And I brought a bottle of organic mustard oil, which is the preferred oil in North India. And I invited the chief minister of our state to receive this first bottle of civil disobedience. And the law that banned all this is still on paper, but mustard oil is back in the market. And I'm so glad we were able to save this very important part of the... Um, North Indian diet and mustard oil is extremely healthy and you know these, this industry doesn't just use economic instruments it turns its lies into science and it turns scientifically established truths like mustard is good for your health coconut oil is good for your health starts to villainize healthy foods because they have so much money they can buy every scientist, they can buy nutritionists, they can buy the chemists, they can buy the government, and that's what is at stake right now, the very disappearance of truth. You know, also what's at stake, it seems, is the will of the people and global human health and the health of other species, the integrity of our ecosystems, and the foundations of democracy. All of these have been severely corrupted worldwide and some people are saying that there's really not much we can do about it that you know we're looking at a runaway train here without brakes and other people are passive also in a way in saying that the methods are unsustainable and if we just wait it out it's going to collapse of its own top heavy weight and a lot of us really just don't know what to think or do 
so what what do you see are the realities who's who's calling in the background what's going on is it um is it someone oh that's just our wonderful vegetable sellers they another one of our victories <laughs> you know Walmart wanted us all to go to supermarkets and yes but, you know, people go around the street bringing the vegetables. I remember on my visit there, people <laughs> were selling fish, so that selling... Sound, that sound is the sound of freedom for the retailers. I love it. I just want our listeners to know, people come yes. through the streets with yes. their No, their I bread. could just step out of the house and, and buy the tomatoes and the potatoes and the vegetables. And roti, bread sellers, yeah. and the street Everything, sellers. yeah. Yeah, it's pretty They terrific. come to the doorstep. Yeah. Okay, so back to the question... Uh, what do you see are the realities of the situation, and what's your forecast and your suggestion to people? I think we owe it to ourselves as democratic citizens. We owe it to ourselves as earth citizens to not be mute witnesses seeing the runaway train go by. Because we have taken benefit from what others did in the past. You know, for you, it's the civil rights movement. For us, it's our independence movement. And you can't just see it squandered. But this time, at this point of history, democracy and survival are intimately linked. Because if we do not become democratic, we will not survive as a species. That's what's at stake in climate change. You know, we know the climate chaos that is being unleashed, and forget all the debates they're creating about IPCC, forget all of that, forget that Copenhagen was destroyed. But the point is no one can ignore that the climate is chaotic. Look at you getting snowed in in North America with snow, I was told, three feet of snow in Washington. I know people were stranded. This chaotic climate... It's totally destroying the conditions of life, and this is just the beginning. We allow it to carry on. There will be no context for our survival. We allow the last seed to become genetically modified and patented. There will be no food. If we allow food itself to become a commodity, we have one billion people starving today, we will have five billion people starving tomorrow. And everyone should see themselves as a potential, you know, there's this beautiful poem written by a priest during the Nazi thing. They said, you know, they came for the Catholic. I wasn't a Catholic, so I did nothing. They came for the Jew. I did nothing. I wasn't a Jew. And, and it carries on. And they said, and then they came for me, and there was no one to stand by me because everyone else had been killed. And one needs to know that you, because things haven't affected you, you do not have the luxury to stand by and say, no, you have the duty for compassion, That's what every deep religion teaches us, the duty for compassion. And the duty for compassion is also ultimately about self-awareness because saying what's happening to that person there could happen to me tomorrow. You're listening to the inspiring voice of activist and author Vandana Shiva on the Living Hero podcast at livinghero.com. For that reason, people must act. And I really am among those who believe that the more privileged you are, the higher the duty to act. So much time with these rich kids who work on software and IT and say, you know, don't think your life stops making software program. You eat, you owe it to the farmers to make sure they don't commit suicide. You are linked to, to, to them through the food they grow and bring to you. We are linked and because we are interconnected, we must see the interconnections. And once we see the interconnections, things start to change. 
this incapacity that comes out of seeing yourself as an individual isolated in the face of this MIG machine changes. You are now suddenly interrelated and once you're interrelated, you're much bigger than a Monsanto, than an Exxon, than a British Petroleum. And I want to just mention a recent experiment that's been done and decided to be my scientist. The scientists took three trees and deprived one of the trees of nutrients and sunshine. And the other two trees were left to function as normal. And by the end of the experiment, they found this tree that had been deprived had not suffered. It still had nutrients. It still had a healthy growth because invisible mycorrhizae, these amazing fungi that connect the roots of trees, mm. were supplying, you know, the healthy trees were supplying to the tree that had been deprived. Now, I think our situation is the same. If we think ourselves of ourselves as an isolated, deprived individual, we'll get crippled and say, I can't do a thing. But if we realize there are all these invisible interconnections, all we have to do is become aware to them, mobilize them, activate them, energize them, then the force we can exercise is huge. And as I've written in the last chapter of my book, Soil Not Oil, you know, we are made to think that energy is something we consume. It comes either as oil that fills our tanks of cars, or it comes in wirings that lights up the bulbs in our houses. No, the real energy is us. And the sun. And we, we don't always think about it, but we are the food we eat. We are the, the, we are the sun that was digested by the food we eat. That's we right. are the soil that was digested. Exactly. The plant That's is doing photosynthesis and all yeah. of that energy from yeah. what we're eating is yeah. is becoming us, becoming our thoughts, becoming our actions. Yeah. A couple of comments on what you said. First of all, I remember that starving people in India were supposed to be the rationale behind all of this agribusiness and what a backfire it is to hear how things are playing out in India. And the second thing is that I spent some time out in the Midwest last year and I saw just the fields and fields of canola and corn and sunflower and, and you know, agribusiness at work and the people shopping at Walmart. That's where people do their grocery shopping out there, all, all in the Midwest here. And there are terrible health problems from eating that processed food. I think what's happening is people do not quite make the connection. I mean, I know that, that the people I met out there in the Midwest don't have this kind of education and are not making the connections. So we need you. We need, we need the education. We need to spread it far and wide. Now, yeah. uh, you're a founder of the International Forum on Globalization, and yeah. uh, I would love it if you could uh, tell us about this organization and the work you've been doing. Well, you know, we got together at the International Forum on Globalization in '94 when um, the GATT became the WTO, and uh, the GATT agreement was signed. Uh, all of us in different parts of the world had been working to stop this very unfair and unfree trade that is paraded around in the name of free trade because we work enough in our societies to know what would happen when Cargill takes over our agriculture or when Suez takes over our water. We could see and anticipate. 
we also knew that if we don't talk to each other, they will tell lies. They will tell the Americans, you keep quiet. India's doing very well, you know. Someone has to gain. And you'd have Thomas Friedman writing books about the earth being flat. And, you know, um, the Chinese and India in, Indians are taking over. Mm-hmm. And we'd always be told lies about the other society in order to justify the myth of corporate rule, the myth of free trade. The International Forum on Globalization is there for the collection of international intellectuals, activists, um, who, who monitor this in their societies, who intervene this. And we then became, in a way, like the global think tank for the alternative movement. We've done massive teach teachings on these issues. I remember the one in Seattle. And in a way that there should be protests in Seattle came out of IFG organizing. Um, because, you know, nobody really knew what's WTO at that time. We did teachings. But more than that, we said we must have a people's voice out there. And then the young people did much more. We, we had planned for 5,000, and there were 30,000 people on the streets of Seattle. And the young people were really deciding how to be creative in their actions. And WTO was stopped in its track. In fact, since Seattle, WTO hasn't really moved. It was stopped in Cancun. It was nearly stopped in Hong Kong. It hasn't moved for the last two years as the, as the Director General of WTO, Pascal Lamy says it's an intensive care. And people did this to one of the most powerful institutions that was being created by capitalist patriarchy in our time. So IFG has played a very important role in this period. Excellent. When we look at history, the broad scale look, mm. there have been these power struggles between rulers and peasants, between governments and the people. It seems to me that so many times people are run off their land, they're told what to do, they're oppressed, betrayed, lied to, killed off. So the question is, can this cycle be broken? Now things have escalated, as you were saying before, that we have unprecedented oppression, in a sense. Yeah. You know, I think of the the famous George Santayana edict that those who can't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. What can we have learned that can give us this global power, will of the people, to overcome at last? When I talked about learning from Gandhi, it was about learning from history. Yeah. And I think you're, you're so right that if we don't turn to history to draw both lessons and inspiration... I think another author, I think it's Milan Kundera, who's taken that same phrase of Santana and said, the struggle of people against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. And the issue of forgetting is about forgetting freedoms, forgetting our power. I was just told that the new manuals that are being created for psychiatry will be designed in such a way that psychiatrists have no role. Drugs and the pharmaceutical industry will determine what's wrong with you. And it's a total chemicalization and medicalization of an imbalance that really comes out of an imbalanced society. Well, of course, they make you sick so they can sell you the medicine. So I think what we need to learn from history, that there are simple ways of doing things. I think the real opportunity for us, the real challenge for us is, you know, every time they sell us something as something we need, History can tell us we've got simpler ways to do it ourselves. 
Gandhi called it Swadeshi, self-making. Now, we, we are hit with a triple crisis. There's the financial crisis after the whole collapse of Wall Street in 2008 and the subprime crisis. There's a climate crisis and the ecological environmental crisis. And there's an economic crisis that ordinary people face. Now, for all of these, the solution is we need to start becoming producers again. We don't have to wait for giant factories to be set up. We can start creating local farmers markets to make sure everyone gets healthy food. The farmer gets an income. People get affordable food. Now, it takes an effort, laziness, is not the way out. Carelessness is not the way out. But this I believe, that if we learn from history, we can learn the lesson that we can be the makers of our, or the conditions of our life. And that means more employment, more jobs, more hope. We cannot afford to close the future because the growth of today is jobless growth. We've had 8% growth in India and 1% growth in employment. There's a huge destruction of livelihoods. And you cannot run societies over centuries without people doing things. We are not consumers. We are first and foremost creators and producers. And I think that's our power. That's the power that needs to be exercised. But that also means we need to become more social in our conscience. We need to recognize there's something I can do for someone else. And I noticed in the papers that when the financial crisis hit, people were anyway innovating. They were doing things when they lost their job, they lost their home. They started to do new things to make sure they had a life. And I think we just have to become much more creative to deal with the current crisis. Oh, you're so right. And, and people are still dealing with it creatively. And I know that I am. People work to get the money to buy the consumer goods and products. And when you don't have the money, you turn back and you say, okay, well, I didn't really need all those things, actually. I don't need to keep going out to the drugstore or the food store to get all these things. You start using up what you have, first of all, and you can yeah. live on, on grains and beans yeah. and cook for yourself. You have more time. So. Yeah. It forces a change and an introspection that I think actually has not uh, done us harm, has done us good yeah. over here. So what's, what's ahead for you? What's next? What are you working on? And how can our listeners keep abreast of what you're doing? What's your website? Sure. I mean, the first um, is, of course, I continue to do the things I do. I, we continue the seed saving. We continue the... Um, Organic farming, <clears throat> we continue to build direct links between farmers and eaters. We've just won this big victory uh, to stop, at least for, uh, there's a moratorium on a genetically engineered eggplant, and uh, very busy with consolidating that. Uh, in fact, tomorrow I'm organizing um, a big conference called Two Decades of the GMO Free Movement. We talk too much about how powerful corporations are. We talk too little how powerful we are. So we are doing this conference to say in these 20 years we stop them here and here and here and here. And in fact, the biotech industry only survives in a big way in six countries. M most places they haven't been able to spread. In most foods they haven't been able to spread. So we're celebrating this tomorrow in a, with the science, with the best of knowledge, but to say we can stop these guys. The other thing we are really working hard on is the nutritional question. 
because, as you said, the junk food is stealing our health, stealing the health of our children. And we are working very closely with schools on food and nutritional literacy, but more than literacy, also the celebration. We, we run little courses called li the Little Chefs. We, you know, the kids should know how to make simple things. Um, we are um, monitoring the biopiracy. You know, I fought three cases and won them, cases of neem, basmati, and wheat. And now there are thousands more because the companies want to steal our grandmother's knowledge. So that's continuing, and within a month I'll probably have some new cases around that. Our main work of seed saving, protecting biodiversity and organic, we want to scale it up this year in a very big way because if we don't, then the corporations will spread. And we, we believe every farmer must live. They must not be driven to suicide. We believe every child must have healthy food. And we believe everyone should have affordable food. Why should every fourth Indian be hungry? Why should every tenth American be hungry? Totally unnecessary. This earth is generous. As Gandhi said, the earth provides enough for everyone's needs, but not for some people's greed. Uh, how can people find out what we do? Visit our website, Navdanya, N-A-V-D-A-N-Y-A. It means both nine seeds, which stands for diversity, but it also means the new gift. And the new gift we try and bring is the gift of sharing, the gift of caring, and the gift of celebrating our commons. You can also come visit us. As the website will tell you, I run a school called the School of the Seed. We offer courses. Do come our way if you travel through India. Beautiful. Beautiful work you're doing. I so admire you. Thank you. Thank you so very much for Thanks. being part of this program.